Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground. Alternative activists, empowerment, talk radio. Speaking truth to our and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro. That's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? This is about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us and the possibility for us as a future person. Because ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. African descent family, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on action block, auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience, experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. matters. Transforming truth truth to power. One One broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. simply by his first name, Prince. Born Prince Rogers Nelson, 1958 in Minneapolis, writing his first song at seven, his first album at 19. His hits in... I just want your head to the time 
kiss. Mixing the profane, the profound, an intoxicating brew of sexuality and spirituality on stage. Seven Grammys, a Golden Globe, an Academy Award for Purple Rain in 1985. Standing just five foot two, his flamboyance, his funk, known to have played every instrument, sung every line of his music. Here he is at his 2004 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony. Rolling Stone called him one of the hundred greatest artists of all time. No one knows exactly how many songs Prince wrote and produced. He kept a treasure trove of never-released work at his home in Minneapolis. Married twice, famously private, he changed his name to a symbol in 1993, becoming the artist formerly known as Prince, explaining his reasons in part to Larry King. I had searched deep within my heart and spirit, and I wanted to uh, uh, make a change and move to a new plateau in my life, and one of the ways in which I did that was to change my name. It sort of divorced me from the past and all the hang-ups that go along with it. Prince once said of himself, as I go on this journey called life, I rarely look back. Tonight and for many nights to come, we will. Tonight at our common ground, we stand. Sir Purple, who dared not to be a slave, he reigns in purple around the globe. Tonight, we pay tribute to Prince at our common ground. We have gone purple.
father didn't know what to do or how to handle it, but they did the best they could with what little they had. Mm-hmm. And uh, my mother told me one day I walked into her and said, uh, Mom, I'm not going to be sick anymore. And she said, why? And I said, because an angel told me so. Now, I don't remember saying it. That's just what she told me. And uh, uh, from that point on, I've been having to deal with a lot of things, getting teased a lot in school. And, you know, um, early in my career, I tried to uh, compensate for that by being as flashy as I could and as noisy as I could. And, uh, you know, I just looked, again, I looked forward to this time in my life when I could reflect back on it and talk to people like yourself, Dr. Cornell West. I mean, when you all come over to the house and we sit and we just talk about heavy things, I... um, uh, I'm, I just, I just become thankful. I... is important obviously it was very important to him but you know we spent you know infinite amount of time together and we very rarely talked about music uh he's a humanitarian first and foremost uh he's not the kind of friend that was there for you when you don't need him uh but if you do need him he is there a thousand percent and whether you know him or not um there are people right now who have solar panels on their houses in oakland california that prince paid for and they don't even know it there are people who are, you know, charities. There are people who are in hospitals right now who, you know, get anonymous gifts. He never wanted anybody to know how uh, much of a humanitarian he was. He's a Jehovah's Witness. Uh, they're not supposed to, to speak about their good works. But this is a, a guy who cared so much. And when you're talking to him, he's talking about everything in the world. He's talking about Greek philosophy. He's talking about uh, lost cities in Egypt. He's talking about humanity. And also, the other thing is nobody knows about him is... You know, if he had not been a musician at all, he still would have been famous as a stand-up comedian. This dude was the funniest guy. I mean, he would have you, not like literally, gonna pee your pants. Like, you know, just it's just unbelievable 
all-around human being, not just a great musician, a great human being at every conceivable level. businesses and to be creative and when he decided to go to Baltimore he stood on that stage and he said when I come back to Baltimore I want to stay in a hotel that you young people have created I want to go to a restaurant that you young people have created you really believed because he got you know he was so young 17 years old and when he first got started he really believed that the young people could change the world and he thought about that we started yes we code because of Trayvon Martin Everybody's marching and protesting about Trayvon Martin. Fred said no. And now, Janice Graham. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for being with us. Tonight, our common ground has gone purple. We mark the transition of Prince Rogers Nelson, simply known as Prince, on Thursday, April 21st, at his Paisley Park recording studio in Tenhassen, Minnesota, at the age of 57. Indeed, Prince will be remembered as a one-of-a-kind rebel who never ceased to surprise us and refused to be a corporate slave. This iconic musician burst onto the scenes in the late 70s and was known for his funky style and hits like Purple Rain and Little Red Corvette. He was notoriously private. And today, 
he was cremated in his hometown and memorialized by friends and family. We will always see rain forever in purple. Thank you again for being with us, and it is uh, uh, indeed a, a very sad time. Uh, we'll talk uh, more about <clears throat> uh, Prince uh, during this broadcast. At the top of the hour, we have something special for you, a performance, a piece of music with Prince and Miles Davis. Uh, at the end of the program tonight, we have another part of our tribute to Sir Purple. If you are listening on a listening device and you'd like to join us at our chat room, you can do so by coming to blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG, and we would welcome you. Tonight at Our Common Ground, we just want to remind you, many people have been asking on the passing of Prince and about why we mourn people that we do not know. I was a huge fan. I am a huge fan of a certain era of Prince. It was early in his career. Uh, I am a huge listener to his music. Uh, I did so until about 4 o'clock this morning. Um, The Loved One and I... Well, The Loved One is a is a huge fan, just a huge fan of Prince throughout his career. And we pulled out a lot of his music, things that we have enjoyed over these 30-some years um, of his career. And it was just a delight to be able to uh, listen to and remark on and revel in both his career and his artistry. Um, We even had YouTube um, videos uh, on the TV. Uh, And it was just a a nice way to um, bask in the purple rain. On Thursday night, I will tell you that all over the world, huge city centers went purple, and it was certainly so here in Boston. Every bridge was purple. Every large monument and gathering place was purple. Even the old Boston Gardens or the TD North uh, Center went purple in memory of, I call him Sir Purple. The loved one calls him the Purple One but the world knew him as one of the most innovative, prolific, and daring artists, musician, entertainer of our time. And we thank him so much. We are greatly appreciative that he left with us music that spoke to us. We don't get a lot of that lately. His music actually talked about our lives. I had um, a friend, and maybe tonight he'll, when he calls in, he'll reiterate how much of the sexual freedom he gave to women 
And and and, and the other thing I want to note is he was a huge advocate of women musicians, and you could see that in his in all of his orchestration and all of his performances. Um, and I I want to make a note before we move on that a number of people believe that focusing on how Prince died might be inappropriate. And I have to disagree for two reasons. First, uh, I agree with Dr. Lester Spence, who is an Our Common Ground um, voice and was with us last month. Um, we're We're losing people of Prince's stature far too early, given their wealth, their access to medical care. And if the rumors about a Percocet overdose are true, I remind you, Percocet is a a painkiller. And um, Prince had had a hip replacement uh, uh, several years ago. And hip replacements have to be replaced about every several years. So we we need to be concerned about how our health issues and our health care is managed and um, that there can be a price when we allow health care and health care management disparities, that when we ignore the need to live our lives according to medical prescription. And I also want to remind you that for more than 40 years, Prince was a union member. He was a longstanding member of both the Twin Cities Musicians Local 3073 of the American Federation of Musicians and SAG-AFRA. So uh, he was also, he also understood that he was part of the working, the workforce of this nation. And his music often reflected the dreams, struggles, fears, and hopes of working people. Uh, He wasn't limited to words. His Baltimore concert in the wake of Freddie Gray's death raised funds to help the city recover. Um... So we have to, it, you know, his his artistry has so well captured the plight of working Americans, of women, of of our our willingness, our owning our sexuality, and blending that all with a respect for other artists of his stature. Some of our new artists could learn a lot from that. I also do want to note I wouldn't I would not I would be remiss if I did not note that Percy Sledge passed this week as well. And we send out our condolences. He gave us some really good music, some down home rhythm and blues um that we will never forget. So thank you for being with us here tonight at Our Common Ground. It is the matter of the hot sauce. When hot sauce matters, politics in your pocketbook, we're going to be talking with 
Yvette Carnell of BreakingBrown.com, Dr. Tommy J. Curry of Texas A&M University, and Pascal Robert of the Black Agenda Report. We call them because they are regular commentators on Our Common Ground, the Our Common Ground unfiltered interlocutors. And we're going to have them in discussion tonight um, to talk about an interview with the Breakfast Club um, Monday um, with Angela Yee. When Angela Yee on the Breakfast Club, a radio uh, radio and cable show, asked the Democratic candidate what she always has in her purse, and her response was hot sauce. And she went on to say one of the interviewers went on to say and I'm going to share with you the audio some of the audio of this interview which was which uh is an urban <clears throat> urban cable outlet and the interview was about 30 minutes uh but it got us to thinking about how pop culture and race is in our politics. I'm not going to make any comment about whether Hillary Clinton carries hot sauce in her pocketbook or not, but she was well armed with a response that I was kind of surprised about, and I want to know from our very, very prolific uh, thinkers tonight, what's hot sauce got to do with it, and does hot sauce matter and we thank them for being with us so we're going to bring them right on Yvette Carnell, Dr. Tommy J Curry and Pascal Robert. Good evening my interlocutors. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. <laughs> so good to have you both back but this is really sad. Before we start talking about hot sauce, I do want to ask you uh get some comment on the death of Prince, and I mean, for all of you, for I mean, I was I was 30 years old, um, 20. I was in my mid 20s when when Prince hit the scene. But for you, you were teenagers, uh, <laughs> and so his music was uh, like a part of your life. I mean, you know, it's like I got a hold of Miles Davis, and I got a hold of of um, uh, Teddy Pendergast in my t- in my teens and my college years, uh, Jackson Five. So it was kind of like in my blood. It just just oozed through my skin and got into my bloodstream. So I imagine that that Prince very much was that for you. Yvette, what were you doing? Were you trying to have a boyfriend on Prince's music? I wasn't trying to. <laughs> no. But I, no, no, no. The, 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 the thing about it is, I, I didn't have to have. Um, I didn't have to have any outside influences or, or sneak off to get Prince. My sister is the. My sister's ten years older than me, um, and she is the biggest Prince fan that I have still ever encountered. Um, I know, saw that collection. Multiple- yeah, and that was, and that's not even the whole thing. And she has, you know, like she's like, you know, I have different arrangements. You know, he, he different concerts, he did different arrangements, and you know, and 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 you know, but that time he was in Sweden, and, and I'm just like, yo, I, I mean, so so I grew up listening to Prince just because she was my sister. 
Um, so you know, I've 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 always I've always loved Prince. You know, I, I and I and and I and I wanted to. I kept saying like I'm going to eventually go and see a concert. I'm going to, but Prince was like this vegan guy. He was healthy. I didn't think anything of it. I'll get you know I'll get around to it. You know, and this this was just this was just very unexpected for me. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, very uh, – well, when I heard the week before that he had had an emergency landing and was ill, I was a bit alarmed uh, that he he was ill to the extent that he couldn't wait to get home. So um, it, 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 was, it, it took us all, all aback. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, one of the things that I, that I hate, and I was talking about this with, with, uh, the loved one last night, I said he died alone. Prince shouldn't die alone. But, um, I hear you. Um, I, I had a, I had a lot of, of admiration for many artists through my older cousins uh, when I was growing up. Marvin Gaye was one of them. <coughs> what about you, Tommy J? <laughs> Who you had in the backseat of that car? <laughs> and that Not little a, red uh, Corvette. <laughs> trying to get me in trouble. Uh, no, actually, I grew up listening to Prince because I was a huge Michael Jackson fan. So the two kind of went together for me. Um, I started listening to his music a long time. My dad used to play uh, live music back in the early '80s. You know, he was a guitarist, so you know, it was, he was he was somebody that was just in the house. So I kind of grew up on him. You know, throughout my life, I kept I kept songs. I loved you know, when doves cry. I actually liked uh, Vanity. You know, when she came out in the, <laughs> the last drive. Yeah. So, you know, you know, it's hard to kind of you know miss that relationship. So no, he was he was just a household name, and you know he was somebody I deeply respected as a actually instrumentalist. You know I, I admired how many different instruments he played at the time. You know I was learning to play you know bass, and you know went to school playing baritone things like that. So he was always somebody I thought about you know in, in that way. Uh huh. Uh huh. Um, I I I I hear you. I, I as a music, I was drawn to him as a musician. Um. And um, when he hit it with Purple Rain, and then mm-hmm. when I heard the the LP rendition of it, I was just beside myself that this right. man had such a vocal range and he had such an instrumentation range. And then I saw him the other night on a video where he was with um, James Brown and Michael Jackson. And he picked up a stranger's guitar. I mean, I'm not a guitarist. I would never characterize myself as a guitarist. But you just can't pick up somebody else's um, um, guitar and start playing it. Because if you notice, all all guitarists have to do their adjustments. And he just picked it up and he ran with it. And I mean, and and his and his entertainment style was just his. What he was 
doing was so connected to his music. You know, like sometimes, Yvette, you see uh, people running around on the stage and it has nothing to do with what they're singing or what they're playing, and you're wondering, what the hell are they doing? <laughs> yeah, but, somebody just uh, offered them a gift. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, this man was a cultural icon. Am I right, Pascal, uh, for your generation? Uh, thanks for having me on the show, uh, Janice. I think for me, definitely, I'm a, I'm a little bit older than both uh, Tommy and Yvette, not by much, but uh, Prince was probably, Prince and Michael Jackson were the two iconic uh, pop artists from my generation. Uh, I, I appreciated both of them. For me, Prince goes back, my first memory of Prince was literally when I was in the seventh grade. And that would probably have been probably been like maybe nineteen eighty eighty one where people were told to bring in uh albums from their house for we were having some kind of like share music day in in junior high school or something like that and I remember someone brought what now I look back on was the first prince album to class uh-huh. and I remember seeing it and I think the album had his face on it he had the like the the straight permed hair and I remember listening to the music and I remember the the, the album I was like, wow, this is different. And you know, what I stuck, I think of you know, I want to be your lover, you know, a little red Corvette, nineteen ninety nine. So I have memories of Prince that precede Purple Rain. I mean, he was at that time just another of the you know various black R and B groups that were very popular in the seventies and the eighties. But as we all know, he became a superstar in, with the advent of, of Purple Rain. That album. And that the film that accompanied it, which was basically a semi 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 biographical work, really brought. I was a junior in high school when that film came about, and everyone mm-hmm. I knew went to see it. And uh, well, his yeah, it, he he just he just like just blew out the music industry. Picked uh, a landscape. This was yeah. this is MTV, so he he had immediate videos. You know, I remember when the the first video I saw. From that uh, album was When Doves Cry. I, remember, I vividly remember seeing When Doves Cry mm-hmm. on MTV, and I was saying, "This is just the, the artistry of this, of this, of this, uh, of this music video is incredible." But I think the, the thing that is most important for people to understand about Prince is that Prince was probably one of the greatest virtuoso musicians we've had over the span of black music. Not just in modern history, I mean in the span of black music. And the reason I know this, and I was telling you this earlier, is that um, I went to a predominantly white Catholic high school in New York, and I knew a couple of guys who were very good, like heavy metal, you know, guitar players. And, you know, heavy metal guitar players, they always have, like, they enter their music, but you don't think they know black music. So I would, you know, always talk to them about, you know, like what, you know, what, what kind of music they like and whatnot, and I would ask them who they think are the greatest, guitar, you know, great guitarists. And uh-huh. consistently, they would say two things: they would say Jimi Hendrix is God, and then there's Prince. And I was like, okay, it's interesting they named these two black guys. Hendrix, I always heard at that stage, I didn't even know Jimi Hendrix was black. I was like, who's Jimi Hendrix? And I learned later on who Jimi Hendrix was, but I was like, Prince. And I remember yeah. all the time they would say Prince is one of the greatest rock guitarists in the world. I was yeah. like, really? I, I'm glad you brought up that point because I think that Prince was able to attract my generation 
because of the undercurrent of Jimi Hendrix in his music. That's a very good point. That's a very good and point. And we could, his skill we could was transpose it. We could transpose how we listen to Hendrix with Prince, and he filled a void. He filled that void. That that's a that's a uh, a great. But one of the points that I want to make, and uh, you all can jump in here uh, any time about Prince, is that when, when you were talking about the Purple Rain movie, it was the was first Apollonia, time right? in a major movie that domestic violence in black families had been dealt with. It was the first time in black movies where child abuse and neglect had been dealt with. It was the first time in in black in in film that black sexuality had been dealt with. And I, I think we cannot miss that about what he did. And and and, and the other thing I want to say, and I said it in my opening uh, tonight, was that I think that Prince brought the sexual revolution to black women. Y'all could disagree with me if you want to. I think that's the case for my generation. I think I told you this earlier, jokingly, Janice, is that well, for me, you know, and I'll be quiet, one of Prince's legacies is that he basically sexually opened, he turned out a whole generation of suburban black girls. Go when I was growing you up, said before. It, you said he turned them into freaks. Yeah, he turned them into Because when I was growing up, it was really, it was really the sisters from the suburbs who were really into Prince. I mean, we, the people who were from the urban environments knew him, but I particularly remember that it was young, you know, high school age black girls who were from, you know, the suburbs from nice families who were really, really into Prince. And I remember mm-hmm. seeing the the effect that he that his music had on them. I was like, Okay, this is interesting. <laughs> so, uh, I definitely think that he liberated a generation of uh particularly my generation in some ways. I mean, you know, we can't give him too much credit. But he opened their minds <laughs> to conversations and things that I don't think were considered socially acceptable in a sexual way before. Uh, but I also think that, that he gave black women permission. I mean, definitely for self, self-sexual self exploration, that's for sure. Yeah. I mean, you look at the lyrics to a yeah. song like Darling Nikki, you know, the first verse is talking about her, you know, yeah, about, you know, self-gratification and, you know, mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, and, and, Exploring, you know, one's own sexuality as a woman. Uh, I definitely think you're right in that he he opened up avenues and doors. That uh, and this is something that I like to say is that if you really think about even you know, how sexual Prince's lyrics were at that stage, but they were still things that you could play on most radio stations or still you could hear, but they still did not degrade sexuality when it became something that was almost kind of just so cheap and, and just puerile. When you compare that Audrey. to the way sex is used in modern R&B today, which sounds like even cheap bad porno, you know, it, it, it shows the artistry of his lyricism in the way that he was able to take erotic concepts 
that had never been touched on before, but yet vocalized them in a way that did not make them cheap, puerile, or or just you know you know or, or vulgar. I mean, I, I mean, it, it's it's kind of amazing. I was I was riding with my sister today. That's when I took the picture of the of our princities, and there was one song where he basically says, "I'm gonna jack you off, you'll jack me off," and but it still wasn't. It was it was overtly sexual, in your face sexual, but you it didn't it it still didn't feel cheap. And then you still had you still had like international lover, right? Where he's playing this game of the pilot or whatever. So you get like this kinky kind of you know you know foreplay and all. I mean, it, but it but it, it it never felt cheap. It felt like he was he was he was doing something that was very genuine. It was very artistic. In terms of what he was trying to do, and he wasn't just trying to do something to, sh- yeah. to just shock you for the sake of shocking you. No, I'm exploring myself, and I'm helping you explore you, and we're going to do this together. You're you're absolutely right. And then he underscored all of this with his attire, with his costumes, with the and and, and most of his stuff wasn't costumes. There was his wardrobe on stage spoke to his music, spoke to who he was as an artist. And I just love that about him, that, you know, the time that um, he did some, I don't I don't remember what concert it was, but he wore a bikini and, and high-heeled boots, thigh-high boots. Mm-hmm. And in that concert, wherever it was, it was um it it was the music that made it look so natural that a man would be standing there in high thigh boots with high high heeled thigh high thigh boots with this huge guitar and there was Sheila E uh by his side and they were making love and it was making love to the music and you understood that. Even when he wore his lace. And I mean, I just I I loved everything about um, about this man. I really did. We're going to take one or two calls on this issue. Our number is three four seven eight three eight nine eight five two. I am with the Our Common Ground Unfiltered Interlocutors. Three one two. The Interlocutors are coming at you right now. You're on the air. Hey, Janet. Hey, house music lover. How are you? Good, thank you. Good. Um, so I'm not calling from the Chicago today. I'm actually calling from Atlanta. I had to come down here for a hot second. So I hope it's not too noisy. They got me out here at the varsity <laughs> trying to eat these uh, greasy hamburgers. But um, I heard you talking about Prince, and I had to call. Um, uh-huh. You know. Uh, Bowie died in January. Bowie was one of my absolute uh, heroes in the case of music um, because he was able to express himself so openly. And me as a little, you know, kind of shy, withdrawn kid, um, even even though I didn't have the proclivity, I still really admired um, his ability to express himself. And, you know, we got that Chicago housing, my Frankie Knuckles and that whole scene, and then I had Prince. So in 1978, while I'm still deep in the rock and roll, I mean, I was a black kid. That's why I listened to rock music, Parliament, Funkadelic, and Cameo. 
That was what I that, that was me. And Prince came out with soft and wet. And everything stopped. Everything changed. <laughs> I went and bought that that for you album and I wore the grooves out. And the next year he came out with his Prince album, the year after that he came out with Dirty Minds. And it was a rap. I was still I was getting into my, you know, DJing and house and disco and still a rockhead, but you know, Prince he was just he was he was he was so different. And, you know, he was free. And, you know, he was doing all that R and B and sync pop and um kind of new wave music and stuff and that's what was in, that's what was happening. But eventually after controversy came out and he hit that purple rain level, it was over and he became that, that instrumentalist. And like yes. um and like hitting those guitar licks, like I like your guest was saying, he was the second best guitar player ever behind Jimmy. And he got so much stuff from Jimmy. He got some stuff from James Brown. He got some stuff if you know Sugarfoot from Ohio Players. Um, his, that's where he got his style from. Which was, which was and food. and that's what I mean by his respect. He honored yep. other artists. Absolutely. He didn't bite them. He didn't steal from them. He just learned from them, and he took it and took it to a different level. And he incorporated all of it, and he did it with that level intensity. And it was a purple rap. Hey, house. Thank you for your call, and you have a good time down there, and you be safe in Atlanta. we got to run to some hot sauce uh, on our common ground, but we're glad you're with us. Are you listening from our app? Uh, no, I'm, I'm on your line. Oh, I see. <laughs> I was just trying to be, you know, trying to push the app a little bit. You know we have an app, and you I'm can sorry, go to all it. of our websites, our Facebook page. You can listen live, or you can catch us on demand on our app, and it is sitting very prominently on our website at OurCommonGround.com. House, you be you you stay cool, and we're going to rock on and be in the purple, because it's a purple wrap. You're absolutely right. I'm going to, I'm going to mute you, and, um, and we thank you for your call. You see, Pascal, Tommy, and Yvette, we mm-hmm. understood who this man was. So many of us did. Uh, I agree. I, I agree with you. You know, well, you, know what, you, know what you know what I'm just thinking. Like, like something that just occurs to me. You know, Prince was like we said. You know, you know, sexual, overtly sexual, exploring sexuality, all of that. And I can't recall. And correct me if I'm wrong. Did he ever have like a sex scandal? Was he ever accused of anything? I can't remember no, anything like that. No, he never had a sex scandal. It, it never. And you know, he had um, uh, some things I wanted to. I, I didn't want to fill up the whole first hour, but there are a couple of things. Uh, Prince was married. Uh, he was a seven-time Grammy winner, and he was married twice. He, I remember when he married his back, backup dancer, Maddie Garcia, in 1996. And a few years later, they split, and then he married a Canadian businesswoman by the name of Manuela Testolini. And she filed divorce in 2006. So they were mm-hmm. married uh, probably about three years. He also suffered the loss of a child. He had a son, a boy, Gregory who died just a week after he was born 
uh, because there was a skeletal abnormality um, known as Pfeiffer syndrome. And the other thing that is so incredible about this man is that he was a self-taught musician, mm-hmm. and he learned piano at age seven, guitar at 13, and drums at 14, and he started his first band that he named Grand Central when he was in high school, and he signed with Warner Brothers as a teen. So uh, I tell you, you know, and we keep talking about this Purple Rain soundtrack, uh, and When Doves Cry, uh, in 1984, he simultaneously topped the album and singles chart for those and held the number one spot at the movie box office for the film Purple Rain, which earned nearly $70 million. And and the song Purple Rain was originally a whopping 13 minutes long, but he edited it down to just eight. <laughs> that sounds like one of my openings or one of my one of my breaks. I mean, he was an incredible man. He was just an well, incredible absolutely. man. And that um, movie stands up to time. That's a great Purple Rain as a film is actually a mm-hmm. great film. It's a, the story. It, it's a well done movie. It's a very interesting storyline, the plot development and everything. I mean, and I know it's uh, semi biographical, but it actually stands the test of time. It's a, it's a it's yeah. a it's a pretty good movie. Yeah, um, I have to be honest. I, remember, I mean, I fell in love with it with Apollonia, so <laughs> I, I, can, I can understand that. <laughs> That's what I remember. Hell, my, my I almost movie. fell in love with him my damn self. Uh, but, <clears throat> um, I mean, she didn't have much of vanity, the, but you know. Uh, but but one of the things uh, about that film, uh, just a note, uh, yesterday my granddaughter stopped by, and, of course, we were having our, our Prince Fest up in here, and um, and she was giving us the, the side eye. And um, we suggested to her that she watch the film. She had never seen the film. And she watched it last night. She is forever purple. Wow. <laughs> she is forever purple. She called to ask uh, if she could come over and get our <clears throat> um, Prince playlist onto her device today. So uh, he will always be. He will always be. I, I've just really enjoyed uh, having this discussion about Prince and being able to play to 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 provide um, his music tonight. Um, I didn't think that when I heard the news on Thursday. Of course, I started blasting um, Prince in my office, um, and I didn't think that I was going to be as emotional as I feel about his death, especially uh, noting today that his publicist has confirmed that he has been cremated and memorialized by friends and family on today. We have Pascal Robert, Dr. Tommy J. Curry, Yvette Carnell of Breaking Brown. They are the Our Common Ground Unfiltered Interlocutors. And we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking hot sauce and Hillary Clinton. 
Our Common Ground, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Empowering Black America. The I Declare Show. Real. Raw. Right now. Tuesdays, 9 p.m., the I Declare Show with India Declare. She brings it real, raw, and right now. The home of real, raw, right now talk media. And indeed, as we always say, I declare it. India Declare, real, raw, and right now. I Declare, Tuesdays, 9 p.m., Blog Talk Radio, the I Declare Show. No dickety, no doubt. Reloading the truth at TruthWorks Network. Listen, learn, liberate radio. Always news. The Black Voice Collaborative. Reloading the truth. Opening the door to liberation learning. Listen, learn, read. Truth must be spoken loud with pride and more than once. Views. TruthWorks Network, Mondays, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Reloading the truth. Only at TruthWorks Network. He loved music, he loved playing his instrument, and you know the times that we did jam together uh, were amazing with all the various people he would bring together, and most of all, he brought all the various cultures together. Um, He could play classical music if he wanted to, he could play jazz if he wanted to, he could play country if he wanted to, he played rock, you know, he played blues, he played 
pop, and he played you know, everything. He was just a great musician. And Common Ground with Janice Graham. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And now back to Our Common Ground. Tonight we have been paying honor to Sir Purple, the purple one, Prince, who was cremated today and memorialized by family and friends. And we sent out a special shout-out to my friend Tamron Hall, who was a very special, special friend. And I know that her heart is weeping purple tonight. And we want you to know, Tamron, we got you. We got you. Tonight at Our Common Ground, the Our Common Ground Unfiltered Interlocutors. Pascal Robert of the Black Agenda Report, Yvette Cornell of BreakingBrown.com, and Dr. Tommy J. Curry of Brilliance at Texas A&M University. And we're going to move on to our topic of the night, and that is an interview. 
during an interview with the Breakfast Club, um, cable TV New York City urban show, Angela Yee asked the Democratic candidate what she always has in her purse. And we're going to be talking about what she actually said and why it matters. This is our common ground, and um, it's interesting. And then the interlocutors will talk about it. You're watching The Breakfast Club. Morning, everybody. It's DJ MV Angela Yee, Charlemagne the God. We are the Breakfast Club, and we yep. have a special guest with us this morning. And let the record show when she walked in, I gave her a handshake, and she did it the right way. She bought it in, cuffed it, and everything. Yes. yes. And then she ended yes. like this. Yeah. <laughs> Hillary Clinton, ladies and gentlemen. Hey, great to be with you all. Thanks for having me. And then she told us about a fun game of dominoes. She, said she, slammed, she won, slammed the dominoes down on the table, and screamed, Dominoes, mother <laughs> Mr. Big, kind of. <laughs> you know, we, we've, had, we've had hearty discussions. A lot of black people feel like they don't trust you because you, you mispronounced Beyonce's name. Have you uh, learned to say it correctly yet? Well, you just said it correctly. Yeah. Beyonce, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know what? I was really tired that day. What can I say? It's mm-hmm. Beyonce, though. You can't make Beyonce. those kind of mistakes. I know. I know. There's so many important things to think about when you run for president. <laughs> and I, I mean, you know, I, I went to Michelle Obama's um, birthday party, and Beyonce performed. Mm-hmm. It was so amazing. We were in the East Room of the White House, and they had, you know, a stage set up and everything, and she had some of her backup dancers. I sat there, and I was just, like, amazed. Because, like, look, I've seen her on TV a million times, mm-hmm. but to mm-hmm. see her that close and in person. And so afterwards, I was talking to President Obama, and he said, yeah, I saw you over there. Your mouth dropped open. I said, yeah. It was unbelievable. What an incredible performer. He goes, yeah. He said, everybody in this audience who'd never seen her in person before, they're all saying the same thing, like, I can't believe it. It's mm-hmm. just like a natural phenomenon. Have you ever mimicked some of her dance moves in the mirror at home by yourself? <laughs> Single ladies. Single totally ladies. by myself. Uh-oh. Yeah, I'm always in trouble when I try to dance in public. Have you uh, noticed that? that. I, you know, I have talk? no coordination. I'm going to tell you, the real issue with that is that the new dance was to run off on the plug twice. You ever done that? Do you know what that is? No, I don't know what that is. It's you not going to do It's kind of like cardio. You stand up. Oh, cardio. I, I do cardio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, I can run in place. Yeah. yeah. Do you know I what it means to run up like on the plug? <laughs> you should I mean, try it. She has the most amazing stamina, endurance, <laughs> coordination. You should try to run off on the plug twice. <laughs> All right, I'll try. I'm telling you I'm going to do to improve your life or anybody else's. And then hold me accountable. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to disappear, you know, behind the fence of the White House. I'm going to be out here. I, I promise you, if I'm fortunate enough to be president, I'm going to be on your show again. I'll invite you to the White House. I'll, we'll do it from the White House because I want to now make listen, sure. Now, listen, don't tell us that. And don't hold it. Don't hold <laughs> I don't do that. We come into the White House. I tell you. Don't lie to me, Hillary. I'm not, I would never do that. Okay. I would never do that. Tell, I'll tell you. Okay. If he has a criminal record, can he get in the White House? I have yeah. one. I'm a super predator. I used I'll, to be. Oh, well. I'm glad you refined <laughs> yourself. <laughs> <laughs> now, you was in Brooklyn last night. Yeah. You, you didn't say rest in peace to Biggie Smalls. All shout out, Jay-Z. Why not? Yeah, well, you know, it, it went by so fast. Mm-hmm. It went by so fast. And i got to tell you, it's hard. I, there are so many things you want to say, but they get to ask the questions. you got to answer the questions. Then you got to figure out what else you want to say. And then the big red light is blinking like this, and the moderator's saying, I've got something else to ask. But just one it's big hard. up to Brooklyn, R.I.P. Biggie. I said I love Brooklyn, but you I couldn't get any more. I said I love Brooklyn. Okay. you got to say, is Brooklyn in the house? It's, uh, Brooklyn in the house. This is right. a biggie on the way up. <laughs> now, now, we mentioned the super predator yeah. thing. You know, we, we've had discussions about that. I don't, I don't know if the 
the phrasing isn't what bothers me. I think what bothers me is when people talk about super predators but don't address the system that created the I super agree. Predators. Brooklyn in the house. That's right. Right. Yeah. Now, now, we mentioned the super predator yeah. thing. You know, we, we've had discussions about that. I don't, I don't know if the, the phrasing isn't what bothers me. I think what bothers me is when people talk about super predators but don't address the system that created the I super agree predators. With that. When you I talk agree about with the, that. The Nixon, you got the aid from the Nixon administration who yeah. said the war on drugs was the war on blacks. Yeah. The Reagan administration, even the, the crime bill that you signed, like, we got to address the system. How do we hold yeah. the system accountable for that? Well, first of all, you know, I, I, I've said that I should not have used that word. And, it, uh, you know, I was talking about drug gangs and, and traffickers and cartels, but it, it was a poor choice of words. But that's why the very first speech I gave in this campaign, I went up to Columbia with David Dinkins, who's someone who I really like and admire. Um, because he broke down a lot of barriers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I spoke at a, at a big conference he was ha- uh, holding about how we do take on the system. And let me make a, just a couple of quick points because it's a really serious issue. We need criminal justice reform, and it's not enough just to have body cameras, although we should have that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got to retrain police. And but I'm equal opportunity, yeah. though. I've given a lot of the presidential candidates donkey of the day. Well, look, I'm a Democrat, so being mm-hmm. donkey of the day is... <laughs> a little bit of a mixed blessing. <laughs> <laughs> now, historically, you've always like worn like pantsuits. Yes. Well, is, is it, yes, I have historically. Yes. Is, is it true Steve Harvey's been your inspiration? I think Steve looks pretty sharp. Yeah, he does. I have now. not asked him though who his tailor is. Do you well, think he, I should next time I see him? Yeah, he's better now. He used to have the like the baggy joints, the baggy suits. Oh yeah. yeah. But yeah. he looked like sweatsuits. Well, I, I could probably give him some advice because I've had nearly every kind of pantsuit there is, just about. Why? Is that by design? Like, yeah, well, you know what happened? I'll tell you. Um, obviously, I wore dresses most of my life, like, you know, most people growing up at the time I did and as First Lady. And then I just, I was doing so many things and I was running around and I just thought, you know, I'm going to start wearing pants. It's just so much easier. And once I started, I couldn't stop. So here I am. Me too. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love a good pantsuit. You no, know, I wanted yeah. to know, my, my anniversary is coming up shortly. Ah, 15 years. 15 years. How did Bill propose to you? Okay, how much time do we have? You're right now. But we appreciate you joining I got us. Got one, I, no more questions? They said, no, she has to go. She what's what's something that you always carry with you? Hot Just sauce. Really? You, yeah. Yeah. Really? Are you getting information right now? <laughs> Hot sauce. <laughs> Hot sauce in my bag, Swag? Hot sauce. Really? Yes. Now, listen, yes. I just want you to know, people are going to see this and say, okay, she's pandering to black people. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Is it working? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. not, no, seriously. Hot sauce. So I've been... I've been Eating a lot of hot sauce, a lot of uh, raw peppers and hot sauce. That's why you're coughing. You might need to slow down. A I need to, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm having a rebellion against it uh, because I think it keeps my immune system strong. Oh. I really do. I think hot sauce is good for you in moderation. Let's not go. I just like it. Well, my grandma like used it. to say, "Go in hot, go out hot." So just be careful. <laughs> All right. I'm gonna tell you how you really get the hood though. Pardon Max B and Bobby Smurf. <laughs> Put it on my list. Yeah, put that on the list. <laughs> but pardon, please review that. Pardon Max B and Bobby Smurf. Or you can host the club with me tonight if you're free. Stall it. Yep. Man, it sure did get hot in here. Once you walk down the wall and talk down talk and whisper in my ear, tell me she loves. I love that talk. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Quinn. Well, I'm going 
going to let the interlocutors unfiltered go on this one because I have no words except for this. That's very rare when I have no words, but I do have a thought here. How we waste the media programming that we do have control over. How we wasted Hillary Clinton, a candidate with a history as eight years a senator and a thousand years as controlling the narrative on the national stage. And we are talking to her about pantsuits and Biggie Small and hot sauce. Interlocutors, come on in. Tommy J. Curry, I want you to take it because I know Pascal Robert is beside himself. <laughs> I mean, this is, I mean, this is buffoonery. You know, I mean, I think, I mean, you've seen some of the pieces that I've shared. You know, most recently the piece by Nancy Frazier on Hillary Clinton and her version of trying to reach out to the black community and specifically white uh, middle class women through feminism. And I think that the problem that we have over and over again is that we invite white people, white Democrats, um, that we know want black attention onto these kinds of shows. And because of the level of intellect and depth that many of these shows have and a concern for black people, she doesn't get pushed on the hard questions. Uh, she's not getting pushed on her visions for things that actually affect black people. Uh, welfare reform, TAF, economic policies, criminalization. You know, she's constantly apologizing for the crime bill, but we don't see how she's really distanced herself from that. We see her connections to Wall Street, so what does that mean? When, 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 when you see white people and their bubbles bursting and they're falling down to the lower class, how do we think that she has a program of economic or social uplift for lower class black and brown people in the first place? So to not be pushed on any of those programs or not be pushed on any of those policies uh, is a huge problem in, in my view because this again shows that the only reason that black people really vote for candidates isn't because of what they do for black communities, isn't because of their uh, intellectual or philosophical outlook on the problems that are affecting poor communities. It's really whether or not they like them. And this is the problem that I have with the, you know, Militaris Parallel recently went to L. You know, you've had some puff pieces on Clinton come out in Cosmopolitan um, by black feminists, and this is what they're doing, right? The thing that Frazier was saying is that Hillary Clinton appeals to economically mobile white feminists under the advancement of their own interests. And what black people have done is they've been sold on this image, and they're letting the black bourgeoisie speak for them and sell them the kind of powder puff view of Clinton where she's down for black people, and she's down with Beyonce, and she's getting information because she keeps hot sauce in her purse. It's the most, it's the most intellectually insulting and, and racist stereotype that I think that you could put on a black community that's faced with high levels of unemployment employment, poverty, health care crisis, and, of course, police brutality. Uh, this is just silly. Now, Lucy Jen? No, I'm here. I'm waiting for yeah. a vet to come in. Because <laughs> <laughs> I have no words. <laughs> I mean, you know, the the most telling point of that interview, because, you know, you know, like you said, you weren't going to get into whether she carries hot sauce in her bag or whatever, but, you know, a, a lot of her defenders did point out that, you know, she she said, you know, in, in other interviews that she carries hot sauce, or people have always said she carries hot sauce. The most interesting point of that interview was when he asked, when, he, when, when Charlemagne the God, I mean, what kind of name? I mean, this is ridiculous to it all. But when he says, when he says, you know, you're going to be accused, he says you're going to be accused of pandering to black people. And she says, mm-hmm. you know, kind of jokingly, is it working? 
And I think that was like a moment of honesty for me. Like that's what she's really thinking. Like she's really gotten, she's vibing with these people to the point to where he's kind of saying stuff that's, that's really sort of true. But she, you know, normally she wouldn't say it. And I think that's what she was thinking. Like, is this working? And it, it, it's kind of, it, it's just, it's just, it's just ridiculous that that you have these, you have the. Listen, I'm t- I'm tired of being led around by people like Charlemagne God. To be quite, to be quite honest, and I'm not trying to just pick on him. I'm saying that I heard Charlemagne God say one time on a radio station, you know, my parents held me to a high standard. And then in the second breath, he said, you know, I used to, you know, something to the effect of that made that sounded like he used to deal drugs or whatever. So don't, don't, like, you can't lead me anywhere. Like, this is not the person. These are not the people who are supposed to be having this conversation on behalf of black people. This is not supposed to be the clip that we're pulling and saying, you know, let's listen to, let's listen to Hillary Clinton. Like, the Breakfast Club has thousands and thousands of viewers. They're syndicated everywhere. And and they're and they're nothing in terms of political in terms of in terms of intellectual you know bona fides. There's there's nothing that they, they, these are people these are people who are who are who are who have information and they're but we we we've given them this platform and Hillary Clinton can come there and just kind of have fun with these people and play footsie with us and kind of tease us and that's considered like a real interview in our community and that that's a problem because there there isn't a this week. You know, there, even though those are mainstream shows that really don't get to the crux of anything, we don't even have that. You know, the only thing you have is, is maybe a Roland Martin, and these people still pander. These are still people who, you know, are, are, are yep. struggling to get caught on the table. So, yeah, so we don't have anybody to really have a real conversation. So people say, well, she came and talked to us. No, she didn't come and talk to me. She didn't come and talk to well, you, Janice. You know what I mean? Well, well here, here's the deal. I don't invite anybody to my microphones that I can't say I respect you, which used to be my tag mm. for this show. I just don't. If you ta- if if you if you are not ready to talk authentically, openly about how you use your power and control for the interests of black people, I don't need you on this show. So that's not going to happen. Um, but the other thing is, you're absolutely right, Yvette. Her campaign, I mean, I used to be a, a, a political consultant. What you do is you, is you camp media. Who's our friend? What do we need to do? And let's find a place in which to do it. And 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 these are the kinds of, of of places where they are placing her. It happened in the Barack Obama campaign. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I'd like to I, I'd like to make some comments about this. First of all, and this, there are a lot of deeper issues here that have to be addressed about this this horrific uh, media moment. Now, um, if people don't remember, the Breakfast Club also interviewed Bernie Sanders, but he was also with. Uh, Cornell West, I believe it was with Killer Mike and Nina and uh, Nina Turner were on the show as well, and the nature of the conversation was totally different. It was much uh-huh. more substantive. It was much more detailed about you know what is introducing Bernie Sanders to the black community. It talked about Sanders' uh, history in the civil rights movement, and it talked about what his agenda was in terms of challenging Wall Street. And I'm not saying this as someone who was a Bernie Sanders supporter. I, I, which I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not voting in the Democratic Party primary at all. But the point I'm saying is that we definitely there's there's no question that we should have a problem 
with what is basically a hip-hop radio program. I'm from mm-hmm. New York. I'm familiar with that show, and I'm familiar with that station. These kid, these young people who are who are hold, who are monitor, who are basically doing that show, that's a hip hop program. It's a hip hop talk radio program for the affairs of politics in the black community to be uh, transpiring on that type of program. Obviously, is a mismatch in programming and is problematic. However, that being said, it's interesting that they were able to have a relatively substantive conversation with Sanders and his black surrogates in a way that did not offend the sensibilities of the black community. And we all understand that Sanders is not the front runner. But yet you look at the way the conversation was held with Hillary Clinton, and it was really literally almost kind of like a a stereotypical, almost, I mean, it was so insulting to the sensibilities of the black community to have Charlemagne the God play Negro Whisperer for Hillary Clinton to black people. Like, you know, you know if you do this, if you, if you dance this way, black people will say you're pandering. Like, who are you to say what black people are saying about anything at all? All right? You know, the people who look like they're pandering, are the, that, you know, you are the one that's setting up that situation. In other words, black folk are not the one that are asking her to do this, these, ridiculous, these ridiculous things. There was a point on the program where they asked her, why did she dance? Why did she try to do the nene? Why did she try to do the dap? And she said, well, that's because they just asked me. They, in other words, what we're seeing is that media personalities in the black community are failing the black community. This is not mm-hmm. a commentary on black people. This is a commentary on black media and the rather poor state, whatever we have as black media personalities in the mainstream today in terms of their ability to present a true, challenging, intellectually sound uh, presentation of what a potential president of the United States has to offer to, to, you know, to the black electorate. And this is an embarrassment. It's an absolute embarrassment. And the thing that's interesting to me is that when you compare that to the Sanders presentation with the Breakfast Club, what it tells me is that it was intentionally formatted mm-hmm. this way. This was not accidental. In other words, it was Charlene and these people, That's they, they knew exactly placement. what they were doing. Yes. Yeah, it was product placement. I mean, yeah, that, exactly. That, it, was, I, it was product placement. Yeah, and I, again, this is what I this is where I think you know, Jen. As we've talked about this, you've had, I've read this as well. You know, on, on your page, you know, one of the biggest failures that we have in the black community when we're talking about the black community's relationship to public intellectuals and to social media or media at large is that there is not an analysis of how economics, racism, and actual policy works. Like, we get no analysis of politics, which means if you vote for this person and this person does X, here's a likely consequence. All we get in this kind of neoliberal age, and this is from the mouthpieces of our public intellectuals, is this identity politics, that because black people are progressive, because black people don't want this, you know, show this this perception of sexism, we should all vote for Hillary Clinton, despite the fact that she called black men super predators, Despite the fact that she's been largely indifferent, despite the fact that literally earlier uh, in 2015 she said, "Let's be honest, you know, good will white people are scared of black men in hoodies as well." I mean, at some point you have to look at what the candidate says and say, perhaps this is a person that has some views of insidious racism about what the black community is. 
And because her racism is specifically targeting black males, there's a way in which the black community is distancing itself from that because what the predominant voters are black women and the voices for the black community are bourgeois middle-class black women. So there are very real political issues and demographics and conversations that we should be having. That I think that someone like, I think, you know, Pascal's absolutely right, that when you look at a killer mic, when you look at those conversations about you have to do be more than a woman, you have to have more than a vagina, you have to have policies that benefit poor people, poor women, poor black people, poor brown people, those are the types of questions our community should be asking, and that's not where we're getting in this election. Well, another thing that's also fascinating that's about this presentation. That's not what we're demanding in this election. Nope. No, not at all. But we're, you know, we're listening. We're we listening even, we to the mechanism. We don't even have a mechanism to really demand it. Where's the mechanism? We don't have a. We don't have a media to demand it. We don't have. We don't have a policy framework. Or a, 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 you know, some sort of serious, you know, pack or something. Like there, there's no, there's no mechanism to demand the things that need to be demanded that That's we're true. desperate for right now. Well, what we're talking about is the failure of a of, of a political model. That we've talked about this before that has plagued the black community for a century. It's called the brokerage model of black politics. What does that mean? The brokerage model is that basically we have people who work as intermediaries who claim spokesmanship for the black community but do not represent the actual interests of the black community. They represent their interests being able to basically get in with the political power structure and to benefit them. You know, when we have Roland Martin, Joanne Reed, Melissa Harris, these, these people are not interested in issues that are really concerning the black community in the material condition of where they are. They're interested in framing a political argument in a way that allows them to stay in the good graces of the political establishment that they are trying to serve. All right. When Roland Martin had the opportunity to interview Hillary Clinton and talked about mass incarceration, he did not mention not only her, her husband's role in mass incarceration, but the fact that this woman up until recently was having private prison companies as her bundlers. Right. He never challenged her on that. He talked about maybe we should get rid of private. I mean, he actually said we should work to get rid of private prisons, and she said absolutely, but did not take the question to the next step and say, but, this, you know, but you recently, up to recently, had private prison companies working as your bundlers. So... You know, it, the whole media spectacle works in a disingenuous fashion that is not about truly, truly, truly vetting these candidates. I mean, this is an 800-pound gorilla in the room about this interview. This Breakfast Club interview, which I believe happened after, the day after the New York Democratic debate, about two or three days before the actual primary, this happens after Bill Clinton went on a verbal tirade against Black Lives Matter and it's never brought up. Now, why was that not brought up in this conversation? How do you feel about the fact that your husband is reliving all the horrible things that he did to the black community on the campaign trail for you, Mrs. Mrs. Uh, uh, you know, uh, Secretary Clinton? How, what does that say? Do you endorse these statements? Why wasn't that challenged? Well, because well, you know, probably. but here and here is something else to put into the mix of this. Obviously, the Clinton campaign <clears throat> believes that they have a lock. On the black vote they 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 believe that, and they have a they have a lock on the black political establishment which works to them works for them that's what they have a lock on, and unfortunately, that creates the ideological echo chamber in the black community that is the reality 
You know, we have. I mean, but then you had then you had our first African American president on yesterday, proclaiming that Black Lives. Hello, did we lose somebody? Yes. No, no, where was her? I'm here. Okay. Oh, yeah. That um, that Black Lives Matter needs to be doing something beyond yelling at people. But oh, look, oh, that was. I'm glad you brought that up. You you understand what that was about? This is listen. This is a very, this is very important. And I'm very glad you brought this up, and we need to talk about this. President Obama, after Bernie Sanders loses the New York primary, when it is becoming pretty clear that Hillary Clinton will be the nominee, two weeks after Bill Clinton goes on a tirade against Black Lives Matter, is sending out a dog whistle to Black Lives Matter, Hillary is going to be the one, don't you kids bother her anymore, she's going to be the nominee. That's what he did. That's exactly what he did. That's, that was that's basically, exactly, and 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 it and part of the setup was her to be on this Breakfast Club show. Yeah, but notice how the critique. Now, notice the critique of Black Lives Matter, though, Janice. Right? I mean, you've had black intellectuals. You've had, you know, black agenda reporter at one point. I've, you know, Pascal talked about this. You know, on Facebook, you you've had serious criticisms of Black Lives Matter. And the fact that it doesn't understand, you know, economics, it doesn't understand politics, power, you know, policy. There are real, con- you know, concrete criticisms. But Barack Obama dismissed the movement without introducing any of those elements to it. So it's just like when, you know, Hillary Clinton was meeting with Black Lives Matter, you know, activists, and that video was surfacing, and she's like, well, you have to do more than just talk to people. You need policy. So despite the fact that Black Lives Matter has evolved in such a way that it's become kind of the face that every academic and, you know, politician is talking about, there is still this demand. And the overwhelming support that Clinton is getting from the black community is overwhelming the need for actual conversations about policy. So we'll focus on Barack Obama, and I think that we should criticize him for his statement because he certainly hasn't done much for the black community in his time. But on the other hand, we have to look at the fact that this is an ideological spectrum where now Hillary Clinton becomes a savior, right? She's being she's the candidate that many of the of the people in Black Lives Matter support. She's the candidate that you get from many of the public intellectuals. So you look at you know Dyson, you look at Crenshaw, you look at those people. She seems to be in their corner or the person that they're supporting. So we have to look at how this is set up. So that the people that you know are constantly claimed to be the academic face of Black Lives Matter simultaneously support Clinton as the alternative, despite what Barack Obama says. And again, the the black community, the black masses, is not getting a voice in that conversation. But there's another no. factor, and Yvette, I want you to jump in here. But there's another factor that's going <laughs> on, uh, a, a thread that's going through all of this, and that is that even though the, the Bernie Sanders surrogates, especially with the leadership of uh, former Senator, State Senator Nina Turner, even though when black people started pushing back at Hillary on issues that have so damaged the black community, when Hillary was uh, is unable to identify any specific thing that she did in the interest of black economics, black social service, black anything. Here's a senator for eight years who never went to a house. New York City has the largest um, portfolio of public housing in the nation. 
its total is equal to or exceeds more than any other public housing in the country. And as a senator, she just went to her first public housing property week before last. Tells you a lot. But when black people started pushing back and asking the questions ignited by Bill Hillary's Bill Bill Hillary Bill Clinton's ranting they still felt that they were locked in. Well because she, she hadn't visited she hadn't visited a housing project because she didn't come there for that. She came there for Wall Street. She visited Wall Street a lot of times. So that's what she was there for. She went where she was there for. She knew where her bread was buttered and it wasn't in the ghetto. She comes, you know, and we all know how easy it is. We've all talked to, we've all talked to, you know, to a large extent about how easy it is to, to just neutralize, you know, not not just black people. We're talking about poor people, people who are disproportionately poor. You know what that takes. But what really struck me in terms of you have this woman who is still being investigated by the FBI, and you have Barack Obama basically coming out and saying, "Leave her alone." And it, 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 it's so ironic when you consider the fact that Obama himself was a community organi- organizer, and, and, and from what I can tell, not necessarily a, a very effective one. But there was a CNN documentary I mentioned earlier that they played like in 2008, 2009, when Obama, was, when Obama was either had become president or, or shortly before he became president. And it had him at this community meeting, and the people were going back and forth, and he wanted this one older woman to speak. And you saw him in the back of the room just screaming, let her speak, let her speak. There you are, Barack Obama screaming. So as a community organizer, who was a community organizer who was much older than these kids are, than a lot of these kids are right now, but you know, but you're telling us to be quiet. And the thing that the other thing that got to me is that you know when LGBT activists interrupted both him and his wife, when when you had and when you had immigration activists yell at him and, and and you had kids in schools interrupt him and say yes we can as a form of advocacy in terms of immigration. Um, and what he needs to do on immigration. He never said you all should just, you know, should basically stop doing that and get in the room. He, he mm-hmm. never really said that. They were never chastised in that way. And to me, this is just his parting blow. This is what he's always done. This is the same guy who got in the room at the Congressional Black Caucus. Now, I'm not a big fan of the Congressional Black Caucus. I think they're part of the problem. They're part of the blackness leadership. They're blackness leadership functionaries. But he got in the room with, like, former Black Panthers, John Lewis, who was a civil rights activist. And he told these people, remember, you know, you need to march with me. Put your, take your bedroom shoes off or Take your bedroom shoes off. Yes, and put your march shoes on. Now, you, that's just mm-hmm. how you talk to the CBC. And, but this is how, these are people who actually did march. And then people who are being activists today, this is how you talk to them. But you don't talk to anybody else that way. So, I mean, I think the guy just, you know, I've said this before, and I take slack for it, but he doesn't really care for African-Americans or the African-American tradition. He wants to, I think he has know, a visceral contempt for black people, I, without a doubt. I think he has I've a lot of contempt for poor black people. He seems to do well yep. with the elites. Yeah, I, mean, I think he has an affinity with the elites because he's one, but I think he has a very, very profound contempt for poor and working-class black folk. Right, yeah, I'm with you on that. And I think the Morehouse speech speaks about that wholeheartedly. Right, that's why I'm saying that I think the criticism is set up in a way where Hillary becomes the alternative to it. I mean, you've got to remember, this is Obama's endorsing a person who, when she ran against him, said that America is not ready for a black president and black leadership. Obama's endorsing a person that amidst police brutality and shootings is saying that don't you really know that black men in hoodies are dangerous, right? So if this is the conversation... And that's what Obama's endorsing, that he sees himself as separate from those conversations, or at least unaffected by it. And I think that's a very, very dangerous message 
uh, to be given a, a nation where you have this increase of anti-black violence and poverty. Because Obama's not Obama's leaving the White House, so he doesn't really have any other alternatives to give black people, you know, unless he, you know, these pardons go through. So outside of that, then the only way that you can get any kind of traction is going to be the black community believing that Obama is co-signing with Hillary Clinton. And again, this is what I'm saying about the product placement. We don't have black intellectuals and activists who are criticizing the relationship between Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. We don't have black intellectuals that are criticizing Obama besides the fact that, you know, besides when they don't get the policies or the benefits they want, on the way that he separated and created a class division between black elites, academics, lawyers, politicians, etc., and the black poor. That's not part of the discussion. So Hillary Clinton becomes this kind of perfection of how that hope's going to be realized. You're moving from race to a white woman who claims herself to be a feminist. This is popular culture for equality, and even black people can get on board with that. And that's a huge problem given the concrete and material conditions that are affecting our people. But here, here, here is something that I find very curious, <coughs> that most black people who are paying attention have listened to this interview and people aren't angry about it. People are saying, "Who's cooking dinner, Pascal? Not I me. know you. You, don't, Pascal, don't know how to sit still. I know what he's doing. <laughs> he's probably dusting. <laughs> sit your ass down. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> you see, everybody else is being quiet. <laughs> Uh, but but here here is the point, and I want Pascal to really listen to this question. The question is, why aren't black people insulted by this obvious uh, dot on the the word winning from Hillary Clinton? Why I think the reason why we, because we have. We have to ask the question, what black people are you talking about? The majority mm-hmm. of the black political media elite is completely in the tank for Hillary Clinton. That's the reality. Who, who are the critical voices of the Clinton machine? Quite, you know, I mean, even, even unfortunately, the black left has not taken up the, the mantle of really you know, challenging what the Clintons represent as the potential political future for the leadership of this country, instead of you know focusing on Sanders and his you know his non capacity to fulfill the, uh, the the needs of the black community. I mean, for me, quite frankly, for a variety of reasons, and I think it's obvious from the history of the horrid policy that Bill Clinton put forth that affected African Americans predominantly in a negative way, from the, the, the horrible stewardship that she took over at, as Secretary of State from Libya to Honduras to her role in Haiti to uh, her connections to Wall Street to the corrupt slush fund of the Clinton Global Initiative. There is no question that anyone who has any kind of objective sense or barometer of what is sound politics should question not only whether or not this woman should be president, whether or not she should be locked behind bars for the kind mm-hmm. of activity that they have, they have taken on. But who in the black community is willing to say what it needs to be said to avoid being, you know, taken off the Clinton gravy train? But they're scared of the gender politics, Pascal. Right? I mean, that's I mean that's that's the push, right? The question, the, the symbolism of Clinton 
is political progressivism. And you have black elites who believe they represent the black community trying to say that the black community is progressive, hence Clinton is the is the alternative. Clinton is the answer. She's the next step. And this is well, a very powerful well, ideology. The identity politics, as we know, the identity politics uh, with the rise of Obama have been an effective tool of neutral, politically neutralizing the black community. I don't think that Hillary Clinton's white feminism is going to be as effective if she does eventually become president, because I don't think that that is going because of her long political uh, resume and the damage that has come along with it. I don't think that people are going to give her the honeymoon period that Obama had, and and, and I don't think that's necessarily going to translate as effectively. But one thing I will say is that I do agree with you that her the identity politics of her gender are definitely getting particularly large segments of the black feminist cadre in academia and various other places to support her. But we have to call a spade a spade. There is a patronage machine in the Democratic establishment, uh, you know, uh, uh, politics. And that there are elites in the black community that they want those minority set-aside contracts. They want to have a few, hey, maybe we can do some work with, you know, the, uh, with Obamacare once we start to fix it. They want, hey, maybe we can, you know, you can set my, my, my medical practice up with providing services to, you know, uh, you know certain subsidized, uh, you know, uh, medical facilities. There are, I have a friend of mine who's a black doctor who told me that all of his buddies are waiting for the payday when Hillary becomes president. So I agree well, with you that the, the deal. Here's the deal. Most of those people get very lost. I mean, even un- unless you are working at a state um, Democratic Party campaign, seriously, most of those people get lost in the shuffle after a candidate has been elected um and, and and I don't understand why people don't understand that. There's the other thing that people, to your point, Pascal, it, it's called the Plum Book. The Plum Book is a listing of all positions in the federal government available for appointment. You don't have to, you fill out the application and you simply get appointed by some official in some cabinet agency uh, or the White House. And those jobs are generally meted out by very high-level, by very high-stakes party people. So I'm trying to figure out what it is they're trying to get. I mean, in, in government contracts, you're talking about contractual law and OMB. So even if you had a friend, your friend can only get you so far uh, in any of those contracts. And if you look at the, uh, you know, something like Section 3 program at HUD where um, contractors are required to go through a certain kind of and there's affirmatively furthering going on and and community involvement. None of that stuff ever happens. So what they looking for? They believe the gravy train the gravy train is coming. Yeah. Uh, well, where's the gravy train 
uh, uh, train stop? Where's the train station? I have no idea. I don't know if they think it's coming from the Clinton Global Initiative when they come in office, but I, I'm telling you right now that there are Negroes who are supporting Hillary who believe that there's some kind of payday coming down the line when she gets into the White House. Well, listen, I mean, but look, we, I mean, we saw we saw part of it in terms of the reaction that we got to Obama's My Brother's Keeper, right? You know, with with his efforts to study, you know, poor black and brown boys, and then the movement to, you know, focus this on, you know, black women and girls, clearly there's money from philanthropists and investors out there. Oh, of course. But I think the, the idea. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, I think the idea is that under Clinton, more of that money is going to be available, and that directly affects, you know, black bourgeois and black intellectuals, specifically those in the academy. Right, I mean, yes. you think about this. I mean, you know, when people like, you know, Crenshaw uh, has an organization that supports this initiative. It's being run through Ivy League institutions like Wake Forest, like, um, you know, what's the other place? Columbia, I believe, right? This, this could be government money that's directly going to affect who gets to become the spokesperson under the Clinton administration and have White House initiatives on girls. So, I mean, look, that that's a very real interest for an academic. That sets them up in ways that, you know, are just far beyond the academy. It's kind of like Melissa Harris Perry's show. That's something that kind of skyrockets her, rockets her outside of the academic sphere. So I think that that's why you see so much support there. I mean, on the other side, I mean, I, I think this is just politics on a, a certain point. You endorse a candidate and people who own businesses, people who want some of these contracts. You know, there's the the program for, um, you know, women that's under Jurette that's talking about entrepreneurship. I think the idea is that these things are going to be subsidized. And, I mean, we have to we have to be very realistic about who's trying to benefit from a Clinton presidency. And I think that one of the things that we, we've constantly failed on is that, you know, and I think this is the problem with the black left, they don't want to encounter the gender politics. They're not willing to go and talk about neoliberalism beyond itself as an idea when it comes to how certain groups, certain black groups, certain black feminist politics, uh, and even certain black nationalist rhetoric, like how Obama manipulated the Congressional Black Caucus, how all that rhetoric leads to these kind of white candidates and these white political interests. And this is because we have a lack of public intellectuals that are actually giving us analysis and people who are telling us that if we're, we're bad the black community is bad people if they don't vote for a woman. The community is a bad person or this full of bad people if it doesn't vote Democratic X, Y, and Z. Right? And, I mean, that we have to get beyond that kind of identity politics and that simplistic thinking. Black people are very critical thinkers. The same people that we that led the Civil Rights Movement come from the class of black people that are now pathologized. So, you know, it, we, we have to do better. And I think programs like this are beginning, but, you know, we have to keep moving this critique up to national circuit and, and national visibility. Well, one of the things I I I I couldn't have said it better, uh, Dr. Curry, because you are always so eloquent and so synthesized and precise in your points like this. But let's speculate for a moment. Bernie somehow finds himself wherever he's going to be, and it is November. Uh, I mean, it is primary season. And Hillary is nominated. How do you project that all of this is going to play out? I think that there's a very good analysis that uh, I agree with, that I saw Glenn Ford had been talking about for the last three or four issues of Like a Gender Report, and I actually talked to him on the phone. I thoroughly believe that once the primary is over and that Hillary Clinton is going to general election mode, that she's going to pivot hard to the right to court the disaffected Mm -hmm. white voters who are turned off by the reactionary racial rhetoric of Donald Trump 
Mm-hmm. And she's going to find symbolic methods to throw black people under the bus. And I think she's Black Lives Matter is going to be the effective tool. I think mm-hmm. that what Bill Clinton did in Philadelphia was a, a trial balloon of the, the avenues by which the Clinton campaign as a campaign are going mm-hmm. to collectively throw black people under the bus and start courting the disaffected white Republican uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, supporters. I think Which that is there's why I nothing more what important. the president did. His comments about Black Lives Matter, I think that Black Lives Matter is going to be the key that is turned when she moves right. Yeah, they're going to be gonna used be the as, the, as the, whipping, the whipping child. They're going to mm-hmm, be the whipping boys mm-hmm. and the whipping girls. Right, but mm-hmm, that's what yeah. I'm saying. They get to, they're gonna, it's going to be hid under the fact that they don't have policies, right? Right. And then because they don't have a structural critique – She's going to say, I'm the alternative to those kinds of issues. And, but and this because they don't have a structural organization. You're she can't absolutely say right. Black Lives Matter in, in Tor- um, um, Detroit or Black Lives Matter in San Antonio or Black Lives Matter in Boston. She can't, they, can't, they will use the lack of an organizational infrastructure to destroy it. Right. But, but notice – She's going to – I completely agree with her. So she's going to pivot to the right, but she's going to claim herself as a moderate or conservative moderate or, or you know, conservative-leaning moderate to pick up those people that are disaffected, especially if Donald Trump gets the nominee, nomination, yeah. right? Yeah. Because, and that's well, what I'm saying, because goal. all the models are predicting that it's going to be a very close race if it's Clinton against Trump. So the only way that she can possibly overcome that is to become more right-leaning. Now, what is – and, and again – this is the problem when you have this kind of political structure and black people buying into it. Because regardless of how black people feel about getting thrown under the bus, they're not going to vote for Donald Trump. And they know that. It's like Pascal yes. Gamble, right? They're not going to vote for Trump. So then she's still going to get those votes, and she's going to get, because she's going to appear more moderate, she's going to get all the, the actual ideological conservatives who are reactionary against Trump. I have Period. four friends. Four friends who I know in terms of their political ideology, should not be supporting Hillary Clinton, but are. Right. Now, and they're going to, Yvette, you better get ready for it, because they're going to turn on you, me, India Declare, everybody who hasn't become um, a, um, a Clinton girl, and say that we don't understand the fundamentals of sex discrimination and anti-feminism in this country. So, Yvette, you better get ready for it. You need to start writing tonight. Because <laughs> they're going to right? call you all kinds of names. I mean, I've been called names during the whole Obama administration, so that that, that won't be nothing new. I mean, it, this, this whole uh-uh, idea, but though, the that... women coming for you. They are coming oh, for you. Let them come, honey. I mean, I am just, I'm, I am so tired of this idea. You know, we've all, we've all talked about identity politics, but this idea that you and I are on the same team because you too have breasts and you too have a vagina, so we in it together, sister. You know what I mean? Like, no, we're not. This is why I like Yvette. Like, Go ahead. Like, you know, there's, there's nothing like we don't have anything in common. The only, you know what, you know what we don't have in common? The fact that I try to anchor a lot of my stuff in like data, and you don't. Like, you just view this as, oh, that's a girl. And so we're supposed to be in this together. Like, no. And, like, this, here's, a, here's something that I, that I have to say about, about black feminism and black women and, and things and white feminism and things that we don't understand. Like, I understand the things that I benefit from as a black woman, as a black woman of a certain complexion and a, and a certain look that black men don't benefit from. 
So I don't even say that I'm in it like black men. I don't get stopped. I don't get racial profiled on the street. Like when cops pull me over, they give me a warning. Like that's not what black men go through. So this whole idea that we're in it together, even in terms of black people, ain't right. You know what I mean? Mm. So I know it ain't right in terms of in terms of me being a black woman and you being and you being a white woman. No, I'm 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 black first because because we we are as black people. One thing we have in common more often than not is that we lack resources. We lack capital. So yeah, I'm here first before I'm there, and I have every reason to be here. And if you don't understand that, then we have a problem. But see, here's the thing I want to throw out on that. The people who are listening to this show, they'll pay $35 a month to listen to the subscription radio programs that will only sell you what benefits them. You will pass by. I mean, I get so I get so angry, and, and Tommy, you know this is one of my pet peeves. I do, I do. You will pass by an hour common ground post and post something from MSNBC, and I already said it two days ago. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you, That's and then you turn around and say you love black media. That's right. Yeah. And yeah, but, see, but, this but is, won't subscribe but again, this to BreakingBrown dot com. And, and then well, we yeah, wonder why we don't have a mechanism. Like we don't have a mechanism. Right. Like what's black media? Well, black media don't have no no money. Like that's that's right. me- that's there is no mechanism because we don't have the money. We don't have the money to put reporters on the ground. We don't have the money to really pay people to write long form like we need to. Like there is no money. And if we tell you, hey, pay me twenty five dollars a year, like you pay all these, like you like you would pay somebody else. You know, pay me that as a subscription. You're like, oh, I ain't got that kind of money. I just saw you at Walmart throw a hundred, three hundred dollars down. Shut up. So, so yep. you don't really value. You're just saying you value. Well, I mean, you know there's, I mean? A, there's a point. But you vet. There's also the point. If that I started you know, charging this is what a dollar, if I start charging a dollar a week for this broadcast, and I've been doing this, this is my thirty-fourth year, and there is nobody that you can call black who is a scholar, a thinker, a doer, an activist or had something done to them that has not been on this program in 34 years. And if I charge the dollar, 40% of the people listening free right now would not come. Right, but that's but, but Janice, this is what I've talked about before, is it's the hierarchy that's set up about how black intellectuals want recognition. Like, I want recognition from black people in the black community that I'm talking about race issues because I think they're the best ones to judge if my work matches up with their social realities. Most black academics don't want black recognition. They want white recognition, and it's not always being paid. Some of these black intellectuals or these black academics will sell their label for free to MSNBC, to a salon, to all these white venues just to get their name out there to white people. So yeah. we have to understand that there is a very visible, a very powerful, and a, bar- a very careerist, you know, group and mass of black intellectuals and academics that see their careers staked on the fact that they sell out and pathologize black people. But I we call this very that, I call this group that. of people. The, I call this the black chattering class. That's what I refer to them as the chattering class in the black community. And I think Dr. Curry is absolutely correct in that these people are not looking. To be on black controlled venues because those no. venues don't have the money and capital, quite frankly, to pay them. They want to be. I mean, you know, why is Melissa Harris Frey going to L to L magazine? You know, well, why are people going to Salon? Why are people? Why is Tony Hesey coach at the Atlantic? You know, why are people but, trying to be in MSNBC? But even because they're online venues. I don't mean to interrupt you, but I 
interrupt. I don't mean to interrupt you, Pascal. But even if they don't pay, these people will write for free at the Huffington Post. But if but if you exactly. ask them anything, they'll be like, well, well, what you paying? Well, what did the, what did Ariana pay you? She got millions of dollars. What did she pay you? Well, that's, yes, so, that's the so point. what we're saying is that it's not only so much that they're capitalized, it's these it's these psychological wages yeah. of whiteness that what, we believe what, that the, their ice that? is colder. The, the, the ice yeah. of the white publication is colder. Yeah. So as a result, that's where we've got to be to be able to get, quote-unquote, recognition. But again, but this is why they're constantly selling out, right? This is why they're constantly betraying the black masses. You see, because when when you make that kind of investment, when you write for a Huffington Post, when you're when you know when uh, Mark Lamont Hill was on um, Huffington Post Live, it's a very straight narrative. It's a very it's a very fixed narrative. It's it's feminist. It's anti political economy. It's anti black nationalism. It's anti pan Africanism. It's anti critical race theory. So there is no structural critique that could be levied either against Huffington Post itself or the message of ideology that keeps coming out of it. It's set up that way. They attack people like Nelly. They attack anybody who, you know, who has a disagreement with the kind of politics that they have there. So the black intellectuals yeah. that actually do work on black people, if they get a voice there, they have to pander to a different audience. And I've heard very right. real conversations in the academy by black intellectuals that say, if you talk on black shows, you're going to be pigeonholed, and that won't allow you to mobilize to where you want to go. These are very well, public and well-known conversations. Yes, and and that certainly has happened. That ha- that certainly has been our experience uh, up until about the time that Barack Obama was elected. There was no one that I could call that I would call who uh, would um, turn us down. Because we got history and we got brains Uh, And um, We're seeing some of that And I'm saying to people I'm saying to people very clear uh, You were waiting for MSNBC to call you Now they're not calling you Don't call me Mm -hmm. When you get your new book When you publish your whatever Don't call me Don't even try it The black community is always second hand That's right and this Bob is the problem that I've had with Roland Martin, and I've, I've been yeah. very vocal about it, is that, you know, you, you get people that you think are stars to give you, you know, publicity, but then what about people that actually study what the hell you're talking about? Yep. Why not bring so in people on domestic violence and black people? Yep. And black, you know, I, black I think, men being killed. I think the next time that we get together, we need to be talking about this whole matter of black people and black media because one day we're going to find ourselves, and I think it's coming very, very, it's becoming very clear. On the right, the right is losing Rush Limbaugh. His network has filed for bankruptcy. So the 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 right wing heads are going, and the centrists are going to be looking for the pablum that's sold. According to I give you the talking points And you talk to me from the talking points And we're going to be lost Pascal Robert Tommy J. Yes, J. Curry Yvette Carnell of BreakingBrown.com The Our Common Ground Unfiltered Interlocutors Thank you so very much Media next time You've made it plain You've wrapped it in purple and um, I am I am so grateful for your comments, uh, but I think we have to stay on this "you play me" kind of politics. We cannot afford to be played. For our callers who were trying to get in, I apologize so much. Um, 
tonight we're standing in purple on our common ground, and as we go out, we're going to go back to honoring the artists that we knew as Prince. Next week, 10 p.m., I'll be listening for you. For those of you who would like, we're going to be playing uh, our intro, which is the main tribute to, to Prince right at the end of the show. You can call 646 uh, no, 347-838-9852 and get on the line before we go off the air, and you'll be able to hear it. If not, you'll have to go to our archives and listen on demand for it. Thank you so very much, and we thank um, our interlocutors. They are brilliant, are they not? much for joining us here at our common ground tonight a special thanks to the unfiltered interlocutors dr tommy j curry pascal robert and Yvette carnell 
We'll see you right here at 10 p.m. on Our Common Ground next Saturday. I'm Janice Grant, and I'll be listening in the Purple Rain. Pioneering. A star so big the world knew him simply by his first name, Prince. Born Prince Rogers Nelson, 1958 in Minneapolis. Writing his first song at seven, his first album at 19. His hits in... Mixing the profane, the profound, an intoxicating brew of sexuality and spirituality on stage. Seven Grammys, a Golden Globe, an Academy Award for Purple Rain in 1985. Standing just five foot two, his flamboyance, his funk, Known to have played every instrument, sung every line of his music. Here he is at his 2004 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony. Rolling Stone called him one of the hundred greatest artists of all time. No one knows exactly how many songs Prince wrote and produced. He kept the treasure trove of never-released work at his home in Minneapolis. Married twice, famously private, he changed his name to a symbol in 1993, becoming the artist formerly known as Prince, explaining his reasons in part to Larry King. I had searched deep within my heart and spirit, and I wanted to uh, uh, make a change and move to a new plateau in my life. And one of the ways in which I did that was to change my name. It sort of divorced me from the past and all the hang-ups that go along with it. Prince once said of himself, as I go on this journey called life, I rarely look back. Tonight and for many nights to come, we will. Tonight at our common ground, we stand, we stand in the purple rain. Stand the purple rain. Stand the purple rain. 
Sir Purple, who dared not to be a slave, he reigns in purple around the globe. Tonight, we pay tribute to Prince at our common ground. We have gone purple. father didn't know what to do or how to handle it, but they did the best they could with what little they had. Mm-hmm. And uh, my mother told me one day I walked into her and said, uh, Mom, I'm not going to be sick anymore. And 
She said, why? And I said, because an angel told me so. Now, I don't remember saying it. That's just what she told me. And um, uh, from that point on, I've been having to deal with a lot of things, getting teased a lot in school. And, you know, um, early in my career, I tried to uh, compensate for that by being as flashy as I could and as noisy as I could. And, uh, you know, I just looked, again, I looked forward to this time in my life when I could reflect back on it and talk to people like yourself, Dr. Cornell West. I mean, when you all come over to the house and we sit and we just talk about heavy things, I, um, uh, I'm, I, just, I just become thankful. I, musician is important obviously it was very important to him but you know we spent you know infinite amount of time together and we very rarely talked about music uh he's a humanitarian first and foremost uh he's not the kind of friend that was there for you when you don't need him uh but if you do need him he is there a thousand percent and whether you know him or not um there are people right now who have solar panels on their houses in oakland california that prince paid for and they don't even know it there are people who are, you know, charities. There are people who are in hospitals right now who, you know, get anonymous gifts. He never wanted anybody to know how uh, much of a humanitarian he was. He's a Jehovah's Witness. Uh, they're not supposed to, to speak about their good works. But this is a, a guy who cared so much. And when you're talking to him, he's talking about everything in the world. He's talking about Greek philosophy. He's talking about uh, lost cities in Egypt. He's talking about humanity. And also, the other thing is nobody knows about him is... You know, if he had not been a musician at all, he still would have been famous as a stand-up comedian. This dude was the funniest guy. I mean, he would have you, not, like, literally going to pee your pants. Like, you know, just, it's just unbelievable all-around human being. Not just a great musician, a great human being at every conceivable level.
genius to start businesses and to be creative. And when he decided to go to Baltimore, he stood on that stage and he said, when I come back to Baltimore, I want to stay in a hotel that you young people have created. I want to go to a restaurant that you young people have created. He really believed, because he got, you know, he was so young, 17 years old. And when he first got started, he really believed that the young people could change the world. And he thought about that. We started Yes We Code because of Trayvon Martin. Everybody's marching and protesting about Trayvon Martin. Fred said no. And now, Janice Graham.